If you ever watch an investigation uh, into a missing person, what you're going to see is you're going to see a lot of people putting a lot of effort into finding that person. Some detectives, they claim they don't sleep. They interview everyone they think can help with the investigation or anyone they think can provide information. And they'll also, they'll go out and they'll get hundreds of volunteers to create a search party to check at a lot of different locations. When we connect this with scripture, what effort do you think God puts in when it comes to finding his own people? In our text, there is a Gentile who watches over the jail in Philippi. This Gentile belongs to God. This Gentile is his elect. And what we are going to see this morning is that God puts his people in places of suffering to reach out to others. He places the person he will save in the midst of adversity. He'll put them in the furnace of affliction to cut them to the heart to believe the gospel. Last week, we saw two conversions. The conversion of a woman named Lydia and the conversion of a demon-possessed woman. If you guys remember the slave girl, she's the one that had the demonic spirit, and that demon helped make her owners rich through her fortune-telling. And so you can imagine how they must have felt when you're making all this money, when Paul comes along and throws out the demonic spirits that did the fortune-telling. And when the demon left, her fortune-telling skills went with it. And so now that the slave owner's cash cow is gone, how do you think they're going to respond? How do people generally react when God's good ways confronts and conflicts with man's greed and love for sin. Retaliation. Just by a show of hands, we are all sinners here. There is no judgment here. You're in a safe place. When somebody wrongs you in some way, how often or do you ever, your first impulse is to retaliate? Gotcha. You should not have raised your hand. We got you all on tape. <laughs> Expect a counseling call this week. Seriously, though. Often we have to fight those urges. We have to fight those impulses. And we see that the owners of the slave girls, they didn't fight those urges. They acted on them. In verse 19, 
we see that they brought Paul and Silas before the government in that area. Let's look at verse 19. But when our owners saw that their hope was gone, that the demon was gone, the fortune telling was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. Now there's no indication that the owners were ever offended by Paul and Silas's teaching, but now that they have offended the slave owners by casting out the demon, now Paul and Silas's teaching bothers them. And they're going to use the teaching of Paul and Silas against them. And they go on in verses 20 to 21 to make accusations against Paul and Silas. It says, And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or to practice. So, in the Roman Empire, one of the reasons it was so successful is that they would allow each nation to govern their own nation under the rule of Rome. So they could have their own religion, they could have their own government, but it was all under the authority of Rome. One thing they weren't allowed to do is to proselytize people from other nations. They weren't allowed to persuade people to come believe the God of your nation. And that's pretty much the charge here in our text, proselytizing. They're teaching customs that we are not allowed to believe. So the slave owners are attacking them before the magistrates. And of course, the the crowd joins in with the attack. Look at verse 22. Explicitly, straightforward, the crowd joined in attacking them. This is herd mentality. We've had plenty of examples this past year that when humans get together in large gatherings, we don't do very well. We're not very good at it. People are already set in the go position to becoming violent. And it doesn't take much for people to be emotionally persuaded into hate, and into acting violent. And this crowd in our text is out for blood. The leaders, it says, also went along with the crowd, verse 22, and verse 22 to 23, they had Paul and Silas beaten and arrested. Look at these verses. The magistrates tore their garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods, And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So we learn two things from this section. One is that when people do good works, when people do God's work, and that work conflicts with man's sinful desires— People will hate the person doing God's will, and often they will retaliate. People will hate us for doing good works when those good works thwart their sinful plans. The second thing we learn, and this is 
looking ahead in the narrative because this is about the conversion of the Philippian jailer, is that because Paul and Silas are put in jail to bring the gospel message to the Philippian jailer, we see that God uses the suffering of his people to bring spiritual benefits to others. God uses the suffering of his own people to bring spiritual benefits to others. One of my grandmothers, she was a very godly woman and a Christian influence on all of us. And I don't know, remember if you guys can remember back to being an unbeliever, but as an unbeliever, it can be so annoying when Christians bring Jesus into every single situation. It's like, yes, Grandma, I know Jesus would want me to share with my sister. But that was her. That's what my grandma did when we were around her. She was always saying, Jesus this, Jesus that. And for the most part, it would annoy us and we would ignore her. But later in life, she started getting really sick. And it was in that context of her being sick that all of the references that she kept making to Jesus started to have an impact on a lot of us. And after she died, though she never knew anything about it, after she died, many of her children and grandchildren came to faith. It was through her health problems, through her sickness and her suffering, that her faithful commitment to Jesus, her proclamation of Jesus in the midst of that, that influenced and had an impact on many of us. Paul, in jail, one time said in his circumstances that his imprisonment, his suffering in prison, has really served to advance the gospel. And God puts us all in unpleasant situations that he can use to impact other people. Beautiful character, spiritual maturity, that often grows in the soil of sorrow. And that suffering that we're going through can benefit others. This is actually the heart of the Christian message. Jesus suffered in this world and on the cross for the benefit of other people. And there's a couple ways that this can happen. There's a couple ways that we can benefit others through suffering. Sometimes we intentionally, intentionally take suffering onto ourselves to relieve other people of their suffering. Like those of you who help others move from house to house. By the way, if you are a Christian, do not buy a truck. Because if you buy a truck, you are going to be the first person everyone comes to and everyone has in mind for helping them move stuff around you're going to be automatically labeled as having the spiritual gift of helping people move every weekend. And by the way, Steve Hoffman does have that spiritual gift. That is confirmed. If you need help moving anything, anything at all, just get in contact with me and I will, I will make sure that Steve reaches out to you. But 
But the kind of suffering spoken about in this text is unintentional suffering. It's unintentional. It's the kind of suffering that God puts in our lives against our will that is intended to benefit us, but also other people. After I was converted, God placed me in a very difficult situation in the military. And it's because I was friends with all these people. I would party with all these people, drink with all these people, do all kinds of things with all these people. But after I was saved, I didn't have a lot in common with them anymore. They wanted to go partying. I wanted to go to church. They wanted to get drunk. I wanted to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And it started getting difficult for me to be around them because often I became the butt of their jokes. And I had to listen to people say, I can't even repeat some of the things they would say about my Christian faith, but they would say vulgar, disgusting things about Jesus himself. And I'm not going to lie, there was times when I was tempted to return to that lifestyle. But I believe that God left me there in the military after conversion to be an influence on them. And I shared the gospel with nearly every single person I worked with. What situation are you currently in? Is it less than ideal? Would you consider it suffering? How about instead of trying to escape it, why not understand that just as Paul was in prison for a purpose, that God has you in this situation for a purpose? And maybe that purpose is to think about why I'm here and to reach out and help somebody else spiritually or physically if you have to. We've seen how God's grace through the suffering, uh, God's grace comes through the suffering of his people, but what is the instrument by which we receive grace? What is the instrument by which people receive grace? What act do we perform to receive God's salvific grace? Coming back in our text, we see that Paul and Silas are in prison. They're making the best of it. Verse 25 tells us that they're praying and they're singing hymns. But then all of a sudden, a miracle happens. Look at verse 26. And suddenly, there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately, all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. So what we see here is that God's ordained means of grace, of prayer and singing, led God to act. God's ordained means of grace, prayer and singing, led God to act. He heard the prayers and singing of Paul and Silas, and he created an earthquake. He opened the jail doors. 
and he set the prisoners free from their chains. Look at how the guard responded, verse 27. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. How sad is that? The jailer wanted to kill himself. Who is this guard, this jailer? We get some clues about him that we skipped over before, but look back up at verse 23 and 24. When they had inflicted many blows upon Paul and Silas, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet into the stocks. So we see a couple things there. Notice that the guard was ordered to keep Paul and Silas. And notice how Luke is careful to mention in verse 24, having received this order. This guard was a man who took orders. He was a man that followed the rules. He did what he was told. He didn't want any trouble. He feared the authorities. And in his position... When a guard failed on his duty and prisoners escaped, that guard was to be executed. And this jailer knew it. He knew that because he at least thought everyone escaped, that he'd receive the death sentence. And so it's no wonder in Verse 27, that we see that he's ready to kill himself. It says he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But just at the moment when he's got the sword and he's about to thrust it in himself and take his own life, look at what Paul says in verse 28. Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. It's amazing how a simple redirection, how carefully chosen words can be enough to take people out of the pit of despair. Sure, it's the fact, it's the information in his head that the prisoners hadn't escaped is what kept him from killing himself, But it took Paul to verbalize that to talk him out of wanting to kill himself. Words impact people. Actually, about a year or so ago, there was a big investigation and trial, and there was an attempt to convict a girl of murder for talking her boyfriend into committing suicide. Her words had a tremendous impact on his decision to kill himself. Our words are often the instrument that either drives someone further into despair or takes them out of it altogether. In your relationships, in your conversations, choose your words wisely and choose to pull people out of despair. 
And notice also that Paul and Silas, they didn't, they had the opportunity to escape. They could have left the jail if they wanted to, but they didn't. And that's strange because if you're a prisoner, you take that opportunity to escape. The writers of the show Prison Break would tell you that this scene would make for bad TV. But they weren't thinking about themselves. They were thinking about the guard. And so the guard, just imagine being there, the guard has heard Paul, he's seen the earthquake, he's seen the miraculous event, he's seen the doors open, he's seen all the chains and the, and the, uh, the chains falling off of the prisoners. He's combined that with the knowledge of knowing that Paul and Silas are in jail because they've been preaching about their God. And he came to the conclusion, seeing all of that, that their God was responsible for this miraculous event. And that meant that Paul and Silas's God was powerful in the truth. And so verse 29, the guard comes trembling with fear to Paul and Silas. He takes them outside, says verse 30, and he asks them the only logical question that could be asked. What must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Notice what's not said here. He doesn't say to the jailer, clean yourself up. He doesn't say, follow this rule and follow that rule. He doesn't say, earn your favor with God. He doesn't say, become a Jew. He simply says, believe. Believe. We are all sinners. And at the heart of the gospel message is Jesus giving up his righteous life for sinners and us trusting him and his work by faith alone. This isn't talking about a mere intellectual assent to doctrine. This is a, that's a false faith. This is a, talking about a kind of faith. This is a quality of belief, of faith. The faith that's being spoken of here is talking about trust. All of you all right now are sitting in pews and you are trusting those pews to hold you up. You're not even thinking about it. All of your trust is in this pew to hold up your weight. That's the kind of faith or belief that saves if you wholly trust in Jesus to save you, you have been saved. We can't be split on this. If you are, for instance, partially sitting on the pew 
but you're not putting your whole weight into it, if you're ready to jump off at any second because you believe the pew is going to collapse or fall, then you're not really trusting in that pew. The kind of faith that Jesus wants, the kind of faith that saves, is the kind that doesn't rely on ourselves. It's the kind that rests in him. It's the kind of faith that says, like the hymn, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. There is a lot of teaching out there that says that we have to do X, Y, and Z to be saved. No, we don't. The second person of the Trinity has died. And that's enough. He paid it all. And anyone that hasn't trusted in Jesus' finished work but is willing to trust him this morning can experience God's saving grace right now. Believe. Are you trusting in Jesus alone to save you? The jailer, he experienced that grace. And he and his whole household, verses 32 and 33, experienced that grace, it says, and was saved. What we've seen is that God's grace comes through faith alone. God's grace, salvific grace, comes through faith alone. We also experience God's grace even after conversion by faith. The same grace that gives you and brings you to salvation is the same grace that keeps you saved. Even if you've been a Christian now for 50 years, it is by faith that you receive grace this morning. Faith is the instrument to receive God's grace. If you have a genuine trust in Jesus, God has an infinite amount of resources to give you at any moment. Trusting in God, faith in God is what gives me grace to preach. Trusting in God is what gives you grace to respond kindly to someone when they have wronged you. We talked about retaliation this morning, right? Try driving down Log Tavern Road at night with everyone blinding you because they have their brights on. See if you don't want to retaliate. Sometimes the kind of, you're driving down the road, the kind of thoughts that will go through your mind and your heart at that time will make you wonder if you're even a Christian or not. Trusting in God gives us the strength to react in ways we don't want to. It's by trusting in God that we access the grace to be given the right words to speak to unbelievers. Trusting in God, faith, 
belief gives us grace to see the glory of Jesus in the word. And I could go on and on. Some of you are listening to this and you have so much going on in your life right now. Not only do you have the everyday stress of taking care of your house, taking care of your kids, paying bills, worrying about dinner. But some of you may be experiencing marital strain. Some of you might have recently lost a loved one. Some of you might be dealing with an illness yourself. And some of you think that you can handle this on your own. But you can't. That's self-reliance, and God hates self-reliance. If you trust in yourself, you're going to see how quickly you begin to fall apart. self Reliance is the enemy. It's antagonistic to having faith and trust in God. You cannot handle life. You can't handle stress. You cannot fix the problems in your relationship or with your spouse spouse without God's help. Repent of self-reliance and trust in God in your imperfect walk. Listen to what the proverb says. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Conversion comes by trusting in Jesus. Sanctification in God's grace also comes by trusting Jesus. Lastly and quickly, I want you guys to see the reaction of the jailer to his salvation. It says, after being uh, pursued and saved through his adversity, Luke records in verse 34 how he reacted. It says, then he brought him, brought them up into his house and set food before him, and he, that is the Philippian jailer, rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Why do you think he rejoiced? Why do you think that is? At the root of all human problems in the world is not having a right relationship with God. We try to cover it up and we seek out joy in other things. But that joy is superficial. The kind of true, genuine joy that everything is right in the world, not a worry about myself, only comes from being in a right relationship with God. We are all full of sorrow because we've sinned and we know internally that we have to pay for what we've done. 
But through the Holy Spirit, when we know that our sins are forgiven and that God is our Father through adoption, then and only then do we experience true joy. If we have to use one word to describe this, the knowledge of forgiveness of sin and having a right relationship with God, the word would be assurance. The joy that we get from assurance is what the Philippian jailer was experiencing for the first time. Assurance creates genuine joy. If I'm going to give an illustration, I want you all to imagine that you've done something terribly wrong to your parents or your boss at work. And they find out what you've done and they give you a call and they say, we found out what you've done and we're going to talk to you about this later on and there will be consequences. Or maybe even worse, maybe you broke the law and your punishment will be serious jail time and the police are looking for you. How would you feel? Not very good, right? You would feel anxiety and fear about what the future holds for you. You might try to ignore it, you might try to stuff it down and focus on something else, but it's always there, always lurking in the background, always eating at your conscience. Well, imagine in your anxiety and in your fear, your mom, boss, police chief, whoever, they call you and say, forget about everything you've done, nothing's going to happen to you. You'd feel much better, right? When we apply that to God, the stakes are much higher. You aren't looking at being grounded, fired, or put into jail. You are facing an eternal, conscious punishment from a just and holy God. And if you take your eyes off Jesus, even for a moment, if you forget about Jesus, who is the basis for God's reason for forgiving you, your assurance is going to go out the window. And fear and anxiety will take over. We are all sinners. Who will sin? And we are going to continue, keep falling on the path to eternity. And because we do that, because we sin, because we fall, our conscience knows that sin is wrong and our consciences condemn us. And Satan and his minions will use our condemning consciences to take away our assurance and keep us in the pit of despair and in shame and in fear. Who all remembers when you first came to faith? There's a lot of feelings involved in that, isn't there? And Paul even describes that. Listen to what he says in Romans 5. God, through the Holy Spirit, has poured out his love into our hearts. 
That is feeling Christianity. As D.A. Carson says, that is Christianity felt. And the Spirit will often do that. He'll pour the love of God into our hearts early on without much effort on our parts. But as we are called to press on to maturity, we have to learn to fight our enemy. We have to understand how our consciences work. And the Christian life is all about learning to fight the things that take away our assurance by bringing it to the cross. The Christian life is about learning to live at the cross. What was in the Old Testament reading this morning? Satan was wanting to judge us, accuse us before the throne. And Josh, in that instance, must have no doubt felt fear and anxiety because everything he was saying was true. But what does God say to that? How does he respond? He said, I rebuke you, Satan. And he says to the sinner, I have removed your iniquity. I will clothe you in purity. When Paul considered the things that threatened the joy and assurance of believers, listen to what he said in Romans 8. He said, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Who is there to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. In Zechariah 3, he talks about clothing us in purity. In the New Testament, it talks about being clothed in Christ's righteousness. The Christian life is a battle of continually taking your sins to the cross to experience assurance and joy, and it's a battle to keep you from falling into hopeless despair. In our text, the Philippian jailer, he was experiencing the joy, but oh, did he not understand the trials that were to come to rob him of that joy and assurance. Live in Romans 8. Bathe in John 10. Seek the assurance that will create joy. There are a group of parables in the Gospels that describe how Jesus searches for his own people. There's one, there's of a woman who she's flipping over all this furniture in her house. She's turning her house upside down so that she can find her one coin. Another is of a shepherd who discovers that one of his sheep have left and he leaves behind all the other sheep to search the mountaintops, to look into the valleys. He does whatever he has to to make sure that he brings his sheep home. And in our text, the Philippian jailer was a lost sheep, but he was his sheep. And God sent his people 
into the jail to reach him. The jailer learned that God pursues his people. And on that day, the jailer knew what it was like to be brought safely back home in the shepherd's arms. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Father, my prayer for Milford Bible Church is that we wouldn't live in despair and in guilt and in shame. My prayer, Father, is that you would teach us to fight, that you would teach us to know that your son has paid for everything that there is a verdict already made of no condemnation before the throne. And that we take all of our sinfulness, all of our guilt and our shame to the cross of Jesus Christ and we receive the assurance and joy to grow in holiness. We pray this, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.